This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we're wishing you a happy new year and starting 2023 with a big interview with architect Moshe Safdie. Plus, we head to Savile Row, where a streetwear brand is breaking the mould. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. Hello and welcome to Monocle On Design for our first show of 2023. It's time to kick off proceedings with a big interview with architect Moshe Safdie. He's a designer whose previous projects are both memorable and influential. Rising to prominence in 1967, after his first project, Habitat 67, took centre stage at Montreal's World's Fair Exposition. The Boston-based architect's portfolio has since expanded to include Singapore's Marina Bay Sands Hotel and the Jewel at Changi Airport. It's a career he's documented in his new book, If Walls Could Speak. Published by Atlantic Books, the title is deeply personal, charting his career with elements of his personal life woven in as well. To discuss the book, Moshe joined me in the studio at Midori House. He began by sharing his impetus for writing. Well, it's been kind of uh, cooking in me. I made a few starts uh, over the past decade. I felt that, you know, after 50 years in architecture, I had something to share. I didn't write the book as a personal memoir. Whatever's personal there is there because I thought it's relevant to the work and relevant to my how I evolved as an architect. Uh, it's not about my love life. Um, Although, to be honest, I would have loved some of that. If that's the next book. <laughs> okay. I, I felt that if I explain how and why things are designed and how they get built, it'll help people, lay people, appreciate what architecture is all about. Most lay people start by saying, I know nothing about architecture, but... And they all feel a little uneasy about evaluating, judging, selecting, making choices. And I thought this will help people feel a sense of inner security that they can think and make decisions about architecture and their environment in a way that they did before. And I'm sure in the, uh, in the process, for most students of architecture and young architects, it'll tell them, I think, a lot of things they should know. When you write a book, you have to tell it to someone. It could be imaginary, but it has to be someone. And that someone was not an architect. I chose actually to think of a friend who's a, who's a you know, thoughtful person, but not an architect. And sort of I had that person in mind so that when it came to terms and to ideas that I thought needed explanation for a person who's not in the profession, it's there. What's your hope by doing that? How does this, is this, a, you know, not selfish, but is this something that serves you as an architect or is it, is it something a bit broader than I that? I think it's to serve the public a, a sense of understanding and knowledge of architecture. I don't, at age 84, I don't think I need to write a book to serve myself as an architect. In a sense, you could say I'm not done, I'm very active, but I, I felt that it could serve the understanding of what the choices are. The, the last chapter is about the future, not the past, and about what's possible, I believe. So it's, it's a book that points a direction of where we should go in urbanism and architecture, what values we should embrace, what is a responsible building, when should we be excited about a building, when is a building timeless? When do you come back 25 la- years later and say, that's great, you know, not, not the wow of moment one, 
which is what we're all conditioned to consider as the only thing that matters. So that's what the book is about. I mean, I, I want to ask about that timelessness. Do you see this, you know, and, and I appreciate maybe this is pushing the envelope, but in, in some of your own projects, are you like, personally, I might have missed the mark here or, you know, I've, I've not probably executed how I would like? Or, and are, are there others? You know, I, talk, I talk about uh, disappointments. I certainly talk about big disappointments of things didn't get built and I speculate about why and how. And sometimes when things, when lessons have been learned and I would do things differently, I certainly talk about them. But I also talk about not just the successes, because there have been quite a few, but why? In other words, Habitat, which is now 55 years old, uh, you know, happily lived in ever after by its residents of, you know, some of them living there from the outset, second generation, third generation. It's a real community. It is is an idea of rethinking apartments, uh, rethinking how to build apartment buildings so you, they are like houses. They have the quality of life of a house. They have their garden. They have the streets, access, identity. And that is an idea that's expanding, that's growing. It's hard to achieve. It affects economics. It affects the building industry, the construction technology. But it is an idea that's impossible to resist because people, by nature, want the qualities of life that that offers. So then there's a story of how over the next 55 years, I aim to make it affordable, reachable, and how I'm happy to say the following generation of architects are now embracing these ideas and they're out there by, you know, many of the younger generation and that's for me a great satisfaction. I mean, can I ask as well, we we featured the Albert Einstein Education and Research Centre in, in Monocle recently. You know, that's there's 50 years between those projects. What are some of those lessons, you know, and, and documented in the book, but what are some of those lessons or developments that you've personally had as an architect that maybe weren't in that in the, the, the well, Habitat project in Montreal that are in Albert Einstein? I appreciate they're completely different projects. One's residential, one's medical. medical school, but there's a thread. The thread is Habitat was built conceived and built on the motto of For Everyone a Garden. And in fact, I wrote a book with a title, For Everyone a Garden. And that notion that each person, each family, each needs a garden got expanded. When I came to work in Singapore and uh, I designed the Marina Bay Sands complex, the idea of For Everyone a Garden became the Sky Park that floating above it on the 59th floor, you had a great, you know, two-acre park with pools and, and gardens and so on. When I came to design the Einstein Medical School at the heart of Sao Paulo, very busy part of town, I wanted to create an oasis. And the labs and the teaching facilities of the medical school wrap around a garden, in, in this particular case, it's a, it's a sky-lit garden, and there are a lot of breakout and, and, and work areas, and the students can gather, and they can come out of class and do some exercises. So the garden becomes the focal point of the communal space within the medical school, and it gives it a kind of a, a sense of the community of both researchers and students and faculty which is what it was about. So the garden theme is the thread, I think, that connects a lot of my work. Can you tell us a little bit about garden as a metaphor? What do you mean by that for our listeners? Well, you know, I grew up in Haifa, which I start 
uh, early in the book, and I talk about the environment of that city in the in the forties and and fifties. And I grew up next to the Baha'i Gardens, which is the holiest place for the Baha'i religion, which are beautiful Persian gardens that sort of terrace down Mount Carmel all the way down to the coast. And I always thought of those gardens as like gardens of paradise. And the fact that they were like of Persian motifs uh, just emphasized that. And so for me, garden is a sense of well-being. And I think in the scriptures, the, the very fact that it's the garden of paradise, that paradise is a garden, tells you to what extent plant life, uh, nature, uh, being out there in green is fundamental to our species' well-being. And how much of this is lost in, in the contemporary high-density megacity? And so our mission as architects and as urbanists is to explore ways in which this density, which I suspect is inevitable for the next decades, few generations for sure, we might change our mind when we have new modes of transportation, we might disperse cities, but for the next few generations, this scale of density is there. And we have a mission. We, can we bring nature into it? Can we have a garden for everyone within that dense Mega city, and I believe it's possible. I mean, you talk about the mission there of architects, and you talk about that connection between nature, you know, the garden as a metaphor, but as an actual place. Is that something that was present at the start of your career, or is that something that's evolved? And do you think there's an awareness around, you know, or, or a kindredness among designers also doing that similar sort of approach? Well, it's building up. When I said, uh, when I did Habitat 55 years ago for a garden, it was certainly not common idea at all. And uh, the notion that garden is fundamental to well-being was not a common consensus for sure. The idea today that nature is important to us, the whole idea of biophilia that evolved in the sciences and that we are now aware of and embrace, that's now a powerful force. It's as powerful a force as a few decades ago, historic preservation was. All of a sudden, people realized it's important to preserve old buildings. People now have come to a consensus about nature. Since there's a consensus, is how do we do it? You know, when uh, Changi Airport decided to build the, the Jewel, the complex that sort of has the airport meet the city, and they wanted an attraction, my proposal was to make just a, a mythical garden and the the fact that you know it has retail in it, it has airport facilities, but it has an amazing garden with all its with its roof draining with a great waterfall right into the center of it, forty meter waterfall. The fact that on day one there were a quarter of a million people at, uh, coming there, and on day two it was six hundred thousand, and then they had to limit visits because it was became so popular and I am I'm told it's the most Instagram building in history, that proves what the power of gardens and being in nature and showing that you can have a downtown center in which shopping and the marketplace are integrated with the park and gardens, that's very compelling proof of how significant that is to us. The architect Moshe Safdi there We'll return to that conversation later in the show.
we stay in London now and pay a visit to the city's storied Savile Row. A new arrival to the street, famous for its tailoring, is Cloth Surgeon, which is drawing a new crowd with an offer of bespoke streetwear. Settling into its bricks-and-mortar store, which opened in 2022, the brand melds classic men's silhouettes with sportswear. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, sent us this report. It's just a kind of a, a play on made-to-measure because that jacket's not going to fit anyone. I mean, it's absolutely ginormous. It would even drown Shaquille O'Neal. And stood beside Rav Matharu, the founder and co-director of Cloth Surgeon, as we study the giant patchwork piece displayed prominently in the store windows of 40 Savile Row. Rav reckons the garment is one of the most photographed things on Savile Row, maybe besides a small blue plaque that celebrates the Beatles' infamous rooftop concert of 1969. All the fabrication within that giant piece is from the collection that's on the rail. Uh, and it's just a play on made to measure, so, you know, it's huge. Um, just saying that we can make to any size and we can make anything the customer wants. As the first bespoke streetwear brand on Savile Row, a headquarters and flagship shop offers a big moment for the brand who have been building up to this for nearly 10 years. With the space, I wanted to create a Brazilian townhouse type feel across art gallery, so it's very bright, you know, to showcase what I call the gallery collection, uh, which runs down the left side of the, of the store. Um, that shows you what you can create in terms of fabrications, silhouettes, you know, inspire your decisions in terms of your bespoke piece. There is no parameters in terms of silhouettes and shapes. Uh, you can create an idea that you have in your mind uh, guided by my skills and services. With everything around the bespoke, it's always new. I'm not creating a collection where I'm seeing the same piece over and over again. So it's very exciting in that sense, you know, sitting down and creating with a customer as opposed to just creating a collection and mass producing that item. I prefer to kind of really focus on, you know, working with a client creating new pieces, creating exclusive pieces. You can go to stores and pay a lot of money to buy a jacket and you may turn up to a party and like three people are wearing the exact same thing. So for me, that isn't true luxury. I feel like true luxury is having something made just for you. You can tell the story of that piece when you get complimented on how it looks. So I feel like that is for me, there's a lot more beauty around that whole making process. Let's have a look around and I don't know if there were any certain pieces that you feel people are often drawn to or what kind of tends to be popular when people come in? I guess the most popular pieces um, are probably the Laura Piana bomber, a classic streetwear, menswear silhouette, a staple in, in every man's wardrobe, I, I think it should be. So we elevate that through fabrication. This is Laura Piana Coronera wool. Um, so we've had quite a few orders on this piece and variations of this um, particular garment. And also our straight leg double pleated trouser, which has been extremely popular. A tailored garment, but worn quite casually. This is uh, the tonal tartan, which we get from Scotland. Great thing about the brand is we don't have a demographic as such, so anyone who comes through that door can create a piece for themselves. 
We've got a lot of customers who don't know about the brand and wandering in whilst they may go to a tailoring house across the road to buy their formal pieces. They've really took to the idea of creating casual wear and creating their casual wardrobe. We have our existing customer and following who have been coming in and just really excited to see the products in hand and feel and try pieces on and very kind of supportive and very proud almost because a lot of these people have followed the journey for the last 10 years. Great response from the rest of the street, the rest of the the tailors, the houses, um, you know, very excited to have a new energy on the street, but we fully respect the craftsmanship, our approach to making product is in the same way that, you know, you would make a, a beautifully tailored jacket. One clothing rail at the back of the store captures my attention. On it, a variety of recognisable icons and brands, but reconfigured in new ways. This is the Reconstructive Collection, an ongoing project taking existing pieces and transforming them into newer works. Vintage Burberry scarves, they're made into a waistcoat. Uh, Louis Vuitton scarves, they're made into uh, a blouson, camp collar shirt and a pleated shorts. Why do you keep coming back to reconstructing and taking pieces apart and seeing what else you could create with them? Everyone recognises it as one item and like is very familiar with that piece in that form but then when you take that and remake it into something new I feel the mind gets very excited about seeing that familiar item in a completely new outfit or garment. I guess it's something that I feel I've got a great skill in doing this. As soon as I see an item or an object or a fabrication, I have an instant idea of what I'm going to make with that. What draws you to certain textiles or makes you want to work with certain, I guess, manufacturers? One that I was particularly drawn to were the quadrat wool fabrics. The, and yeah, yeah, the quadrat, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Just finding interesting fabrications. We source fabrics from various discrete locations where you know you would never be able to find that fabrication again. So I think there's a real story behind that and just finding that fabrication enough to make maybe two or three pieces uh, and then discontinuing that whole fabrication. I think people might think, oh, that's not great from a business point of view, but at the same time, I think it's great from a sense that you know there's only a certain amount of those pieces in the world made by us on Savile Row and there's definitely an added exclusivity and story behind that. We do source fabrication from various places, I've, even the Japanese borough that I got from a, a dealer in Japan. This is probably from the 1930s, maybe 40s. Um, so that's something that each household would have had in their house. And instead of throwing it out, um, they would continuously repair it. And it, over, the, over the years, it builds this incredible character. 60, 70 years later, it just carries this amazing detail throughout the piece, you know, all these hand-stitched repair jobs and this indigo beautiful colours running throughout the piece. Um, so it's almost wearing an antique and you won't get another piece like that because each piece of borrow will be different. We're working with a customer now on the classic Norfolk jacket but 
bring that into the modern world and make it look as if it's from that classic world, but bring it back into this kind of contemporary cloth surgeon DNA. I'm going to play with the, uh, the shape and proportions, keep the original pocket detailing, and kind of elevate that through different fabrications, uh, beautiful cashmere fabric in a plane, as opposed to uh, checks and that kind of rougher handle that a tweed may have. It's not for its original function as a Norfolk jacket, but it's, it's a beautiful jacket that's taken from a certain era and being a classics piece, but we're bringing it into this new world for a customer who appreciates the Norfolk for what it is, but also wants to wear it casually and to go to maybe out with friends, dinner. So we allow people to be able to do that. Cloth Surgeon may have hit a major milestone with its first bricks and mortar store, but Rav is keen to look ahead and sees potential in going out on the road and doing trunk shows. We have customers from all over the world, so we feel like we need to do these trunk shows to take that service and you know connect with our customers and give them that service you know because i feel like it needs to be a one-on-one personal service where we sit down and we design and we draw and then we choose fabrications and then we have a good audience in japan um, we've done collaborative projects with united arrows so yeah i mean we're definitely going to go to the us to do a trunk show to the far east uh, also so it's just figuring it out and then growing the team at the same time you know, we're in a position now where we want to expand the business and grow the team and grow the team in the right way. And we've been very patient, you know, with the whole process. Regardless of where Cloth Surgeon and Rav are showcasing their wares and setting up shop, at the heart of the brand will always be the clothing and respect for craftsmanship. I do treat what we do as uh, an art form. You know, I see each piece as original uh, work of art. You know, we've never wanted to print posters. It's always been about creating that unique original piece. For Monocle in London, I'm Maylie Evans. Thank you, Maylie. And we will be back to pick up our conversation with Moshe Safdie in just a moment. Watch out for Monocle Films. Since launch, Monocle's eagle-eyed filmmakers and journalists have cut and framed visually vivid dispatches and documentaries from all corners of the globe, from one-on-one interviews to industry reports and journeys where you won't believe your eyes. With hundreds of films available now and for free at monocle.com film, there's never been more to see. Let's roll. Earlier in my chat with Moshe Safdie, we discussed ideas about mission and how this is reflected in the architect's projects. But we turn our attention now to the responsibilities of an architect. We pick up the conversation where Moshe shares his thoughts on the role practitioners should play in shaping our societies today. It's fundamental to my philosophy as an architect that every time you draw, you design something, you have to completely identify with the people, with the people who are going to live or work or use this building. You have to become them. 
this is a question of mindset. You're not a sculpture doing some fantastic, expressive thing as a priority, and then you'll fit in somehow the program, you know? It's not about, if you're doing a school, it has to be a wonderful place for learning. That's the, the most central criteria, that students and teachers would be uplifted by the environment, that it would be conducive to what learning is about. If you're doing a concert hall, it's got to be an incredible place for hearing music, for, for seeing the action, for having a sense of community of those partaking in it. And you can take every building type that has a purpose, every typology that has a purpose, has a program, giving that uh, form and shape and space that has the well-being of those who are going to be in it is the mission. And I think uh, in our, in the past decades, because of the force of branding, because of the force of advertising, because architects caught on to the whole idea of branding, because even the world of art is kind of into individual branding, signature style. Think of the words, star architects, signature style, never seen before. Please produce a building never seen before. What does that mean, actually? Give me the wow effect. Where is the wow effect? I mean, ask questions about what's this environment going to be and then say, wow, that's amazing. But to ask for a wow effect independently of what the building is all about, that is a distortion of what architecture is. And much of the public thinks of architecture that way. The idea that a building can be beautiful but not functional, which is, again, oh, this is very beautiful but not functional, is, is a contradiction in terms a, a building to be beautiful must be functional. It's, a, it's meeting its fundamental purpose is part of its beauty. To bring it back to the book, is that, is that part of the reason why you wanted to write this book? Absolutely. To help, help communicate those things? Yes. And is, I guess, an appreciation or an understanding of, you know, those principles that, I guess, the, the function of the building is, is just as important as its beauty and, and is, in fact, what also makes it the building a, beautiful. It can be the source of its beauty. Beautiful. I mean, that, that, is, that is a beautiful way to say yeah. it. I mean, does that then help the work of designers? Like, is there, you know, this, this book just sort of got me thinking in terms of, like, do designers, do architects, landscape architects, you know, do they talk enough to the, to the layman about the work that they're doing? I think I, I have done a fair amount of teaching. I, I still teach at, at Harvard. And, you know, I walk into reviews of the designs of the students and I am an architect myself, and I've been at it for a while. I don't understand what they're talking about in their reviews. They start talking about a building, this and that. I don't understand what they're talking about. And I'm saying that as within the profession. The architecture profession, by and large, has hidden behind a mystique, and there's a kind of the lingo of the profession, and the, this is trying to bring it down to earth. This book is trying to bring this down to earth. I don't think there's any language in there that a layperson won't understand, and every sentence is trying to make plain language to explain important but simple ideas. You, you've got to take the complexity of architecture and break it down into component parts so that it's comprehensible. How else do we start to dispel that mystique and, and break it down? The, the book's one way. What, what else? You know, is there anything else you're doing or anything else you For wish me, you could do? For me as an architect is by case studies, by, by demonstrating through your buildings what should be done. I mean, 
If the book is read by many, it'll have an educational process, but the greatest education you can do is by producing buildings that demonstrate these principles that people visit and appreciate and understand and say, that makes sense. But I'm trying to make a link between that sense of, yeah, that's a building makes sense. I like that building. Like people like going to Jewel. People get excited at Marina Bay Sands. But I'm trying to explain to them why also. So in a sense, linking the process to the sensation and to the experience. Perfect. I mean, I guess just to wrap up finally, you've got the monocle soapbox here. Is is there anything that you want to say, whether it's to architects or the lay people about this book, about your work more broadly or about the industry? There's, I don't have any agenda there. I just want to throw it wide open to you. What, what's the big thing that people need to know? If there's one takeaway from this chat, if there's one takeaway from talking about this book, what do you hope people I, I bring hope with people, them? I uh, people take away from that is that it's possible to really improve how we live and how we work through design. But it can't be done by architects alone. It's got to be something that people demand and people require. Uh, One of the things I say in the book is there's no great building without a great client. And in that sense, sometimes the client is whoever commissions you to do the building. But in most times, it is the invisible client. If you design the school, it's the students. Then It's not the school board, it's the students. And so that the notion of people that more better is possible, that daylight is important, that the quality of light in a building matters, that the sense of spaciousness, that knowing your way around a complex building, you go to a hospital, you should know where you're going, you shouldn't be in a maze and millions of signs, and if there's a, and hospitals should have gardens in them and, and, and in green spaces and healing spaces. I'm hoping that this book opens up the potential of what is possible so people demand it and require it because we won't achieve anything as architects without people wanting and demanding and believing it's possible. Moshe Safdie there. His new book, If Walls Could Speak, is published by Atlantic Books and is available at all good bookstores now. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening, and Happy New Year. <laughs>